Jodemon is the Executive Vice President for International Affairs at the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, BIO, the largest service organization for biotech companies in the world. He is responsible for BIO's program of international advocacy and outreach, including trade policy. Joe spent 12 years as a trade negotiator at the Office of the United States Trade Rep for Asia and Pacific Affairs. He received his master's degree from Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs in 1985. Joe, it's uh, great to see you. Thanks. Nice to be here. It's great to be here in your office. You have a lovely view of the Potomac and DCA Airport and all sorts of stuff. It must be hard to stay focused. (laughs) (laughs) Nice spring day, too. Beautiful day. So, bye. Obviously, you represent the biotechnology organization globally. Can you tell us about the organization as well as the makeup of its membership? Sure. We're the largest uh, biotechnology organization in the world. We're a trade association. We represent uh, close to 1,000 members, uh, large and small. The whole ecosystem of, of, of biotech innovation from academic institutions to startup companies to medium size and, and large global companies. We also host the world's largest biotechnology convention every year. 30,000, 40,000 people a year. Yeah, it's like 20,000, closer to 20. That meeting hosts about 45,000 one-on-one meetings between the participants, which uh, indicates how much interest there is uh, in collaboration, cross-border collaboration uh, globally in this sector. And those face-to-face meetings is often with investors then or people who it are... It can like- be, yes. It can be uh, between a small company and an investor, a small company and a big company. Companies that are looking for partners either on the research side or raising capital, any any combination of these. And so how many, you said you have a thousand members. Do you know the, the scale between small, medium, and large? The large majority of them are small companies, are startups. In fact, we think the majority of the members uh, actually have no commercial products uh, <laughs> on the market. They're still at one phase or another of the development of a new product. And as we know, 92% across all therapeutic indications fail. Mm-hmm. Cancer runs 96%. Uh, neurological disorders, some neurological disorders, Alzheimer's are running at 100% failure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you guys facilitate the growth and essentially nurture from both a policy standpoint and a financial standpoint, the environment for biotech. Right. With respect to the policy, we try to help governments around the world understand what biotech innovation is all about. As you pointed out, how risky it is. Yeah. Also, how expensive it is, how long-term it is. Uh, it's not like producing uh, an app for your iPhone. It takes a good decade, often, to produce anything, if you do produce at all. It's important that governments and policymakers understand this, how it actually works in order for them to really foster it in the right way. Bio does an excellent job making those connections between investors and your members, and in many ways you support the network for that investment. How, do you have any data on how much total investment you guys are responsible for helping generate? Well, the clearest number to look at is just basically how much private sector investment there is in biotech Uh, research and development in a given year globally. And that's about $150 billion. And that's across all parts of the ecosystem, whether it be academic institutions or or small and medium-sized companies or or large biopharma companies. And do you have any particular areas where you see a lot more of that money going by indication? Do you see? I think a lot of it follows the science. Mm -hmm. There clearly has been a trend the last few years in, uh, for example, immuno-oncology. There's a lot of work being done, rare and orphan diseases, and following the science generally with respect to the new information that's always arriving about genetic origins of various illnesses or diseases leads researchers 
uh, in the direction of trying to hunt down how to address those. That said, there's also a lot of research being done in large unmet medical needs. And you mentioned Alzheimer's. Well, sure. of course, that's one where we don't know a lot <laughs> about. Well, we're uh, learning what not to do. <laughs> we're learning what not to do. And it's going to be a trial and error difficult process. And notwithstanding, you know, what you said about the almost a total failure rate to date. Yeah, 254 uh, in a row, 255 in a row, something You know, like people that. are still by trial and error, you know, step by step. And hopefully it won't be too long before there's some breakthrough somewhere. But you just never know. That's the system of intellectual property. I think what a lot of people don't understand is that the IP system creates an environment where you can get a return on investment. And even though there are those 250 plus failures in Alzheimer's, the IP system that it exists creates a impetus for people to be willing to potentially lose their 100% of their investment yeah. to try and create something. It's, it's absolutely necessary, obviously especially that it's so risky for an investor to, to put money into a project like this, that they can be assured that if in the small chance that it is successful, that they can accrue some returns on that investment. And the only way of, of really uh, assuring an investor of that is, is to have very solid and enforceable intellectual property rights. That's what you're investing in, frankly. What we saw in Europe was a broad, I want to say organized, but certainly a concerted effort to look at IPR and confusing IPR as a, a driver of price. And we're starting to see some of those discussions drift into the United States as well in an interest of looking at some aspects of a compulsory license, breaking apart those IPR standards. A bill is being discussed in the Congress about, you know, introducing some aspects of compulsory licensing in Medicare Part D. It would be poison to, okay. <laughs> <laughs> to investors and to startup companies. There's already a tremendous amount of uncertainty in investing in the sector, as we've discussed. If you add on to that, even if you are successful in developing a new product, and if in fact it's quite useful in treating a new disease, and then you have to deal with the fact that the government might take it away from you, through a compulsory license, how do you convince an investor to put their money behind a project like that if, if there's that specter awaiting you in the event that you're even successful? Uncertainty is poison to investors. Why do you, you think know? this is gaining so much traction in the, in the U.S.? I mean, I understand from a European perspective, on some levels, it's a socialized system, etc. But from a U.S. perspective, why do we think we're getting this on the Hill now? I think that the U.S. system is more complicated than the single-payer systems uh, that you have in Europe and in places like Canada and uh, Japan. You have a multiplicity of payers, of insurers. Uh, you've got middlemen like uh, PBMs. And well, what's a PBM? I think a lot of people don't know what a PBM a is. A pharmaceutical benefit manager. Those are companies that health insurance companies use to help manage the costs of medicines by purchasing uh, from the manufacturers. So they end up being like a middleman. A middleman. Okay. And one of the issues that we've, of course, drawn attention to is that the middlemen actually negotiate discounts from the manufacturers, from the famous list price, which is almost never the price that anybody sure. pays, um, negotiate discounts from the manufacturers. And one of the issues we've pointed out to that adds to the complexity of this whole system is often they're not passing on those discounts to the end consumer or patient. Sure. That is their profit margin. 
for reasons such as that, given some of the pressures that insurance companies are under, what we see is that in the marketplace, there's a desire by insurers to pass an increasing portion of the final cost of medicine on to the patient through a higher copay right. or a higher deductible. And so what patients see is a higher cost to them than perhaps they had in the past. There's a desire, of course, on the part of a lot of people to try to do something about that, to try to limit what the out-of-pocket payment is to the consumer. But it's a result of this whole system uh, from manufacturer to PBM to insurer. And the list price that the manufacturer is negotiating with the insurer is not reflective of the price that the patient pays. That's a question of how the insurer structures the benefit for the patient. In any case, the complex outcome of these negotiations is that people want to introduce simple solutions. Right. To very complex problems. To complex problems, which is what politicians do sometimes. And one of those is to basically say, if we're we're not happy with the price that is being charged in the marketplace, whatever the reason might be. It could be because of the insurance company or because whatever the PBM is not passing on the savings. We're going to take it out by requiring the manufacturer, the originator of the drug to hand over their intellectual property rights to somebody else who can then manufacture and compete at obviously a much lower price because they haven't had to uh, spend the hundreds of millions uh, or billions of dollars it takes to develop the drug in the first place. On the other side of the coin, aside from the sort of the blunt acts of a compulsory license, we're also seeing some discussions from Secretary Azar and Health and Human Services about international reference pricing, setting an average price plus 26% of a benchmark, sort of Mm -hmm. a basket of countries. And this is going to be targeting Medicare Part B, which are often the hospital oncology monoclonal antibody, the very expensive Mm -hmm. sort of targeted products. What do you think would be the impact of such a proposal if it was put in place? I think it would lead to a downward spiral in expected returns on biotech investment. The administration takes issue with this. They say that if somehow U.S. prices were linked to European prices, that biopharma companies would do a better job of negotiating with uh, Europeans. And it would raise the price. It would not lower the price in the U.S., but it would raise the price in Europe because now you would know it was linked to the ultimate price you get back here in the U.S. That's not the way it works. Uh, I think anybody who has looked at the way European systems work realize that companies aren't actually, quote, negotiating. They are dealing with a monopsonist single payer where the choice is to serve the entire population or to serve nobody. And you have no leverage unless you just want to walk away from 80 million people in Germany or 60 million people in the UK entirely. So they have you. And the managers of the biopharma companies in Europe are not incented to to give in and, and lower their prices. But the point here, though, is going back to your question, the prices in Europe are artificially low. Countries are not taking into account the risk and expense of developing these new medicines. Their job is to get them after they're developed for as cheaply as they can. And many of them actually reference, they have ways of doing this because it's not a true marketplace. They have artificial ways of setting the price. One of the ways they do that is to reference a basket of countries themselves. So global reference pricing is not a new thing. The Azar proposal introduces it as a proposal for the first time to the U.S., but it's been used in Europe for many, many years. Some of those countries actually reference the U.S. price. So this is where the downward spiral comes in, is that uh, they're referencing the U.S. price, 
The U.S. is referencing their price, so the U.S. price goes down because they're referencing France or Germany. If the Germans reference the U.S. price, then their price goes down because the American price just went down, and then the U.S. price goes down. And where does that lead? It leads to no payer really taking into consideration the uh, risk and cost of innovation. That's going to have a detrimental effect on the incentives to develop new medicines. 70% of mature biotech globally is being acquired by America. So America, in many ways, the United States is becoming the, the buyer of last resort of most biotech. So while the U.S. taxpayer is paying more, the U.S. is also capturing late-stage value creation. You know, essentially, the governments are subsidizing the discovery phase and de-risking it, and then the U.S. is swooping in and picking up things at a certain uh, discount, <laughs> in many ways capturing all that late-stage value. Is there any discussion on the Hill about the fact that the U.S. is dominating in sort of the growth side of the biotech sector? I think one of the objectives of bio uh, is to introduce that part of the discussion. Sure. Have it not simply be a one-sided discussion um, that just looks at very simplistically at what the quote list price for these products are, but to look at the fact that the U.S. is the global engine of biotech innovation now, and that's a good thing. For the U.S. economy, certainly, because those jobs are you know, very high paying, they're very high tech. The U.S., you know, we've long dominated in drug development generally, let me say that. But in biotech, we really, that's even beyond right. for, you know, small molecules. There really is, and it's a growing. So as you, as you point out, uh, places like Cambridge, Mass, are becoming global hubs, not just the hub for a U.S. hub, but people are feeling the need to have to have a, a presence there to do, as you said, their final stage or later stage development to be close to the market and also be to close to the deeper talent pools that we have here. And that's really a, an important point, too. I mean, I think that, as you said, given the high failure rate, I mean, our membership has a lot of turnover. Companies are going in and out of business sure. all the time. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the beauty of the American system is uh, you can dust yourself off, and if you've got another good idea, you can start another biotech company. But you do need to have a pool of talent in this very specialized sector. And, and, and a pool of liquidity. And as well. a pool of liquidity, and certainly those two things. Now, some might ask, well, why isn't liquidity? Talent's a lot less mobile than liquidity, sure. but nonetheless, both pools are available here in the U.S., and it's much easier to do the whole startup routine to attract the capital if you're closer to one of the U.S. hubs, whether it's on the West Coast or on the East Coast. Getting back to some of the issues in Europe, one of the things that I think a lot of the U.S. folks don't understand, Europe right now, for every person who's a retiree or a pensioner, there are only four workers, where there's eight in the United mm -hmm. States. According to current demographics, by 2055, 2060, we're going to be down to two workers for every pensioner, and almost 20% of the population of Europe is going to be over 80 years old. So I think governments are under tremendous pressure to try and cut anywhere they can because their health care costs are rising 2-3% mm -hmm. a year. Mm -hmm. And so I understand philosophically why they're having to do that, but in many ways it's cutting off your nose despite your own face. Well, yeah, and it's also I mean, you know, from our perspective it's done not even in a really rational way either. Medicine costs on, in general within the OECD are about 15% of total health care costs. When you look at where governments actually decide to cut 
when it's time to do cost containment for healthcare, they generally focus on the biopharmaceutical sector. And the reason is that these are faceless foreign entities often, <laughs> as opposed to telling doctors and hospitals that they need to take a cut in their fees. Sure. So even though the healthcare services, other than medicines, are 80, 85% of healthcare costs, it's much more politically difficult to cut those areas. And even though you can demonstrate that medicines are probably, in many of them, you know, if you look at the hepatitis C drugs, the you evidence is pretty good. The, yeah, yeah, you definitely. know, that you're saving, that the upfront costs are more than paid for in terms of the lifetime savings, uh, in terms of, you know, maintaining chronic hepatitis C. Governments have a hard time dealing with that because they still budget on an annual basis. And it's a political problem as well because where the savings are often accrued in the case of hepatitis C is in the uh, liver transplants that right. are in the hospital budget, which does doesn't necessarily go to the well, that's another funds. problem and I think it's something that governments you know this is a policy issue sure. that healthcare spending is still too siloed right and so that means that the full benefits of this new technology which you know has the benefit also of not necessarily requiring you know a liver surgeon and a whole team of people you know it's it's a pill you take or something you take intravenously that's a much simpler delivery system and much more accessible to more people but governments, even though they say they do, they're pretty poor at looking down the road. And, you know, our fear is that as more of the treatments and the technology leads to genetic cures, basically, of diseases where all of the cost is one time up front, but the benefits are lifetime. If you look at things like gene therapy or cell therapy or gene editing, it's going to be this type of arrangement. It's probably going to be for a small population of patients. But the whole cost is going to be up front, and then the healthcare system saves money during the life of the patient. Well, who's doing this cost-benefit analysis? I don't, we don't see that. And what happens if the patient moves? <laughs> what happens if the patient moves? As long as they stay in the country, you know, then at least the country's healthcare system. That's more of a problem in the U.S. where a patient can move to a different insurer. Or a different job. Or a different job, Well, right. that, that gets us into blockchain, which might be a different conversation. <laughs> right, right. The conversation we're having now about targeting the drugs that are the most expensive or the most cutting edge, I, mean, I think that's what I find particularly pernicious about the IP proposal of health and human services is that it's really targeting the Medicare Part B, the monoclonal antibodies, mm -hmm. the cutting edge oncology products, really the ones that are the real innovative basis of next generation therapeutics is what we're looking at. And the general feeling from the administration was that it was only going to cut R&D by 1% from our preliminary work. I mean, we see it's impacting some of the um, R&D budgets by 30%, not 1%. It's, it's absolutely right. I mean, it's targeted at uh, some of the most innovative areas of biomedical medical research, which is a bit perverse. I also think, though, that it introduces this uncertainty on the part of people that are not even involved in those sectors, Correct. that it's just a pilot project, in a sense, <laughs> that's sure. on trial. And that in itself has a chilling effect. And the idea that you're going to try and force prices in other regions up, I think, is um, politically is going to be very, very challenging. Yes. 51% of the cost of drug development, if we believe the Tufts University data, 51% of the cost is roughly working capital costs from failures and financing. 
it's taking 11 years now for many cardiovascular drugs, oncology drugs, neurological drugs to get to market. Wouldn't it make sense for us to work rather than put in artificial ceilings or attack pricing? Wouldn't it make more sense just to try and reduce that 51% of the cost and get to market faster and then make the whole system more efficient? Isn't that a more logical, competitive way to do this, Joe? Yes. And I think that it hasn't escaped the people that are trying to do this work. I mean, if you could find a faster and more efficient while still being safe and while still ensuring efficacy way of getting new drugs to market, then that's a win-win for everybody. But the private sector, the researchers can't do it by themselves because sure. there's a large overlay of policy on all of this, in terms, especially with respect to FDA regulation in the U.S. and how that works. But I think, to their credit, the FDA is engaged in a, a good dialogue with industry. They don't always move as quickly no. as the technology does, as industry would like them. You know, they move with an abundance of caution. Sometimes that leads to frustration on the part of, of people who are involved in cutting-edge research, that they're using old models and applying them to new technology. But nonetheless, the dialogue continues, and, and you know, we're hopeful that we can improve that. I met with uh, Mark McClellan yesterday from Duke University. One of the things we discussed was the potential impact of real-world evidence, as well as also some of the things that Commissioner Gottlieb has been talking about around pragmatic trials. Is bio doing any work in this space to try and facilitate new evidence models using real-world evidence? And where do you see this going? Yes, uh, the answer is um, we are exploring that. I think that's especially important in some of the newer areas of research where the whole model of double-blind trials and everything doesn't quite work, you know, with respect to genetic... And know, certainly with smaller populations. And with smaller populations, it, it just doesn't lend itself. So we, as this pertains to the dialogue, as I said, we're trying to contribute what we can to the FDA's understanding of that importance and necessity of using this kind of data to help facilitate, expedite the process. Well, of course, maintaining all the necessary safeguards, you know, for, for safety and efficacy. So... If you had one change you could make right now or one message you could get to either the Hill or some of the conversations going on in Geneva at the World Trade Organization, what's the one thing you could change if you could? The chief message that I would give is for people to recognize that for all of the difficulties that we have with respect to this biomedical research, and it is difficult, that it is working, that progress is moving along, that new products are being developed, and that at the end of the day, patients with unmet medical needs are being served. Now, it might be in smaller incremental quantities because, as you said, some of these newer treatments have small patient populations, rare diseases, etc. But whatever we do with respect to policy, let's make sure that we preserve that core. I don't think people recognize how tenuous and delicate this whole system is. And they take it for granted that biomedical, biopharmaceutical research will just continue to forge ahead, will be successful, that, that they can treat issues like pricing or intellectual property with a blunt instrument, and that it won't have any impact on the research that's being initiated at the front end. And our chief message there is, to A, to exercise extreme caution. Most of these solutions are ill-advised, but rather to work to, as you said, lower the cost of the development process by trying to streamline that. And there are a number of things that you can do by trying to look at more holistically the cost-benefit 
that's truly provided by the new medicines as opposed to just the cost, sure. but looking at the long-term benefit and then use, trying to use that to weigh what the value of a new technology is and to truly try to understand what the system and what the system for pricing and valuation of new products is, there are definitely inefficiencies in that system as well as, as we were discussing earlier with respect to middlemen and you know, rebates not being passed on, list prices not reflecting what patients pay, etc., to look at the system in its complexity. I recognize that that does not necessarily result in a slogan that you can put on a bumper sticker <laughs> running for re-election and, and running for president in 2020. And that's kind of the, one of the challenges that we face. Well, let's avoid bumper stickers, Joe. <laughs> Joe, thank you very much for your time. It's been okay. Thank you, Dwayne. This Better Science, Better Health podcast is made possible with the generous support of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Global Innovation Policy Center, BIO, Pfizer, and Gilead.